As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Uh, I'm Ben Sternke, yep. your co-host. I'm here with Matt, Tebby. I'm here, yep. Um, the other, another co-host um, uh, of the podcast. And so, along with Christy Penley, our third co-host, who's not uh, joining us today, but uh, she's uh, she's been great. It's been great having her uh, as a co-host, um, and yeah. you'll continue to hear more from her uh, yeah. as we go. So yeah, we've got a great interview today from uh, as part of our race and gender and power series in the church with Diane Langberg. Um, before we get to that, though, uh, I wanted to say a couple things, Matt, that are on my mind. I, I'm here to I'm here to listen. Okay. Uh, first of all, Lent has begun. We're in the season of of Lent here, where this podcast is dropping. Um, we're we're about six days into Lent, I think, uh, yep. something like that. Um, uh, and I was. Uh, I was thinking about um, how I have not been very excited to uh, fast for Lent. I've really been thinking about it. Um, yes. And uh, I um, I put this thought out on social media, and I noticed <laughs> right after I did so that you had said something almost identical, that it feels like we've been fasting since March. Um, so 12 months we've, we've been in. We've yeah, been in. yeah. So no wonder we're not uh, super excited for Lent. It feels like, ugh, we've, yeah. we've been doing Lent for a long time. Can I can yeah. I put an addendum on this though? My friend, sure. our friend Peter, uh, mm-hmm. just said this on my Facebook page. I found myself in a space these past couple weeks, really wanting Lent. Hmm. Reading Jesus Among the Disinherited by Howard Thurman recently was a good reminder for me that there are people around me whose life experience has never not felt like hmm. Lent. Far beyond the events of the last past 12 months, I'm growing more convinced that as long as there's injustice and oppression in the world, there's a need for fasting and fasting well. Hmm. At the same time, I'm really interested in questions swirling around the intersection of mental health, self-care, and spiritual disciplines like fasting. Because if we can't frame Lent as good news, then yeah, to hell with it. Well, that was a nice little mini sermon there for I- your Lent. 
Tell, was I, you know, it's the first Facebook comment I've ever read on our podcast. <sighs> but I thought um, that encapsulated it well. Yeah. And it gets back to one of the reasons why we're focusing on power and gender in the church and why we're focusing on abuse and the episode today in the church mm-hmm. is because um, the Kairos that you and I are having, Ben, and others who we talk to is like uh, those those with power and privilege in a culture don't have to develop, develop like pain and hardship resiliency just yeah. because of our gender or color. Yeah. So um, now it doesn't mean white dudes don't go through hardships. You know, we both have been gone through hardships. I've been pretty public about being diagnosed with trauma, PTSD. So it's not that there's no hardships. It's mm-hmm. just that um, our operating system for day-to-day, every ordinary life hasn't been constructed yeah. out of a need to survive yeah. and be resilient in order to survive. Yep. Yep, it's been optional. Um, it's an add-on. That's really good. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good comment. Um, the other thing, I, w- I was just looking at um, my calendar over here on the wall, and um, the calendar that I have uh, to just figure out, like, when is this uh, when is this podcast coming out, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the calendar I got is this Equal Justice Initiative yeah. calendar that, uh, that has, it's basically like an almanac for each day. There's like a, an event in some year that is significant for um, racism, white supremacy, or civil rights, something like that. Um, And I was noticing that today, this podcast is dropping on February 23rd, and today, a year ago, Ahmaud Arbery, um, Mm. a 25-year-old black man, was shot and killed by a white man in Glynn County, Georgia, uh, who is not arrested until the failure to do so brings uh, to bring charges sparks nationwide protests. So that was just a year ago. So mm. to your point, I, I was just thinking about this calendar and wanted to commend it to people. If you are in that space where you realize, oh, I, I have lived a life where I'm a little bit insulated from these things, um, I found that just reading the reading the event on the calendar each day, uh, it just reminds me that I'm, you know. I'm not insulated from these things, or I can be insulated yeah. from these things, but I want to be connected to them. I want to, um, I want to stand in some small way, be able to stand in solidarity with um, black and brown brothers and sisters who've yes. been oppressed and marginalized. Yes, I feel like I hijacked your Lent comment, but I think to summarize, uh, neither of us are feeling particularly uh, excited about Lenting, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that could be just because uh, we're wimps. <laughs> right, right. That, well, that has been a big kairos for me, even uh, through this whole pandemic, um, is realizing that, that, yeah, there's not a lot of uh, resiliency. And, you know, even just the awareness, the new awareness in 2020 um, that has come to a lot of white people, white churches about the realities of systemic uh, racism, like even that has felt exhausting and overwhelming, all that kind of thing. And that, yes. that's also been a, a, a wake up call to go, oh, this... So this is what it feels like, yes. <laughs> you know, to like look this in the face every single day. Um, and so, And not anyway. be able to solve it quickly. Yeah. Not, you, not be you able have... to preach a sermon series on it and move on or not be able right. to yeah. go to a march and then have everything better. Yep. So yep. part of what we're learning. And Diane has some great stuff to say in a tangential way about this. Um, she talks more about power abuse specifically. Um, but that's that's the thing about racism, right? It's really about power. It's not about prejudice. Yeah, and necessarily. abuse. Necessarily. Yeah. yeah. It's about power and it's about abuse. So 
Anything yeah. else to say about this interview, Matt? No, I just appreciate Diane and her voice. Yeah. I think yeah, we're, we're talking a lot about abuse and power and gender, and we're going to start talking about sex as well um, and mental health. The reason why we're doing that is because I feel like more than ever, pastors feel the pressure, and even mm-hmm. Christians, public Christians, mm-hmm. feel the pressure of being experts on most things. Yeah. Right? So yeah. you have people in your church who have suicidal thoughts, for instance, mm-hmm. and immediately you have to know, like, what? Well, how do I? What do I do? Yeah. Or you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or you've yeah. got somebody at your church who gets mad at somebody else who wears a Black Lives Matter T-shirt, mm-hmm. and you have to figure out who is Black Lives Matter. How do I respond to this? What is? How does my commitment to Jesus impact the way I respond? And yeah. then you know, there's critical race theory, and there's. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we're going to have a person on the podcast later this year who's going to talk about uh, the ways we've talked about sex and the ways we've talked about uh, faith, like faithfully being men and women and yeah. in our sexuality yeah. and how it's been jacked up. Yeah. Like, like not only yeah. anecdotal stories, but research. It's yeah. jacked up. And yeah. so it just feels there's a burden to know about all these things because they keep presenting themselves culturally to us in our mm-hmm. churches and our neighborhoods, et cetera. Yeah. And um, so, so we're kind of using the podcast as a way to just uh, maybe reach out and hold your hand, yeah, and just say I'm feeling that too. So we're gonna f- we're gonna foment some conversations that begin to help introduce and uh, unpack some of these things, so that we can feel a little less unqualified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Um, yeah. So if you wonder like why we're why we're doing these things right now, it's because mm. we we can't not know about these things. Anymore. Yeah. yeah. It used to be kind of an option where you could kind of turn it off, but it's become, it's part of the gift, I think, of our cultural moment is it's a, it's a harsh mercy, but it's a gift to be able to say, you know what? We can't like it, it like only the most obtuse, <laughs> I think, yes. leader, you know, is just going to bury their head in the sand and say, ah, oh, this is just more of the same, you know? And, and yes. so I, I think you're right that, that, we're in a cultural moment where we can't, you know, not pay attention to it. And so that, that is a grace and it's a gift to us yeah. so that we can learn and repent. It's really, also, been, it's really good. Also this season, you may be feeling like you need more support and more investment than ever before. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the main things we do at Gravity is we lead these Gravity Leadership Academy cohorts. And Ben yes. is pulling one together now. Yes. And you have spots. You have room. Yep. As of this recording, I've got room. Um, and so please do check in uh, with me. You can just email us at um, podcast. Well, just email me, bens at gravityleadership.com. Uh, and I can uh, connect you or just set you up with a conversation so that you can find out if going through one of these cohorts would be good for you. Um, this really is the, it's the most transformative thing we do. And it really is um, the way that we get practical about all this stuff. Like, mm-hmm. how do you become a, a person who can lead in this kind of an environment, who can lead from a posture of repentance and learning, uh, and not from a posture of being an expert? Um, how do you actually do that? Boots on the ground. Um, mm. And so, that's a lot of what we do in Gravity Leadership Academy. I am coaching this next uh, cohort, and as of today, we've got two spots available. Um, as, of, as of the release of this podcast, who knows how many spots, but please reach out if you're interested. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, All without right. further ado, or other adieu. French words, I don't know what they mean. 
The let's well, let's think, listen. Yeah. I think adieu, adieu is goodbye, but adieu, I don't think that's a French word. Do you know, though? Do you know? Yeah, I do. Much ado? Much ado, like much, you know, stuff. Much ado about nothing, but it's not much goodbye about nothing. Well, but, you know, just to, uh, just to <laughs> gloss this and but spin it might, this maybe it's in a the French best word, way is I can. Yeah. No, I'm just saying, yeah. well, it could be, but also, um, without further ado, without further goodbying. Further Let's goodbying. Go. There we go. Yeah. So without further ado or, or adieu. Adieu. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear from Diane. All right, here we go. Dr. Diane Langberg, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, Dr. Langberg is an internationally recognized psychologist. She's a counselor, uh, runs her own practice, and co-founded the Global Trauma Recovery Institute at Missio Seminary, which used to be Biblical Seminary. Is that right? That's correct. That's right. Yeah, in Philadelphia. And she's also on the board of Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment. And I want to chat about that later. Led by uh, Baz Chavidian. Oh, oh, ah, shoot. Chavidian. There we go. Uh, and she co-chairs the American Bible Society's Trauma Advisory Council. Uh, what a man! <laughs> you do a lot of stuff, Diane. Anything we, anything else we need to know about you, or you want to add to that? Um, yes, I have two sons and four grandchildren. <laughs> oh, wonderful! So there's other things I do besides stuff related to this. Yes, yes. Well, we wanted to have you on our podcast. Thanks for being on today to talk about your latest book, which is entitled Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority mm. and Abuse in the Church. We're doing this series mm. on how power intersects uh, in our lives in local churches, particularly with uh, stories of gender and race. But you've written a book about the ways we get power wrong and some of the ways we can get power more faithfully in the church. Could you maybe start off by saying, why did you decide to write this book? Well, I was actually challenged to write this book um, mm -hmm. and decided to uh, meet the challenge, I guess, just because I've become aware over the years of working with victims of the abuse of power in many, many ways, uh, how much that is an underlying foundational issue to different kinds of abuse. Mm -hmm. And it is not very well understood. It's certainly not talked about. And... Um, I think we get very confused about those issues. Yeah. So I decided to write the book. Yeah, maybe maybe that's a good place to start then, Diane. How did we get here? How did we get power so wrong and how did we become so ignorant about abuse? Well, we got power so wrong from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so, which I so it goes I, that far back, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it does. But if you think about it, if you go back to Adam and Eve, created in the image of God, which is a mind-boggling concept to begin with, um, and part of what that means is they were people with power. And one, of the, one aspect of that power was the power to choose. And they clearly chose wrong. <laughs> um, and, and they were deceived, which is often how we end up using power wrongly. Mm. is through either the deception of others, but often also 
uh, our self-deception. We call yeah. something good when in fact it is not. And then we use our power to do what we've called good. Um, so we all have power. You know, I start early on in the book talking about a newborn infant who cries in the middle of the night and two exhausted sleeping adults fly out of bed. That's a lot of power. Yeah. And so that power uh, is used and uh, gets responses. And the purpose of it originally was to bless. That's how God used his. And we were to be like him in that way. Mm. And what we did was choose to use the power. And we chose something that was against him, mm. which is an abuse of power. Yeah. So we, we've been that way from the very beginning. Yeah, we come by it honestly, is what you're saying. Yes, we do. <laughs> and we it's do. it's it's not just uh, maybe so. It's not surprising or unfortunate, but it's it's archetypal in the sense that this is what humans do, apart from God, is they abuse power. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I uh, I remember. In your in your book, you obviously in the last fifteen or twenty years, I think more and more Protestant Christians are waking up to the crisis that Protestant Christians have in the local church. I remember being in seminary almost twenty years ago, and at the time on this, uh, I was on an evangelical seminary, and people were talking about the uh, the sexual abuse scandal that was breaking in the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. And there was kind of this tisk tisking sort of thing. Yes, like uh, yeah, you see, you see their their um, abhorrent or uh, errant theology led to these uh, awful godless things. And then over the last twenty years, Diane, there's been this, you know, awakening, perhaps or revealing of of what's been happening in our churches. Maybe maybe um, from your perspective. What changed, what shifted for us to be able to begin to reckon with these things? Well, I think in large part we owe a debt of gratitude, though I'm sure many would disagree with me about that, to victims who began to speak up. Mm. The amount of courage that that takes when one has already been abused yeah. and is pretty sure they're not going to be safe if they tell the truth is tremendous but what they have done is call the church back to truth and light as opposed to cover up hiding and deceiving mm -hmm. and so I, I think that the collectiveness of that voice uh, has a certain power to it that individuals did not have before and so I, I think it has poked the church she has had to respond. Whether she did it well or not is another matter. Yes. But you, you can't have a collective voice like that and continue to ignore it. I mean, you can, but the damage is just exponential then. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so part of, part of what's happened then is that the, um, the, the abused uh, or those who have been affected by these uh, abuses of power, wrong uses of power, um, can no longer be sidelined as uh, uh, immature or I don't know what their problem is. You know, there, there's just too there's too many voices saying something is wrong here, and so there has to be either a, a response of repentance 
which would be what we hope, right? Mm-hmm. Or a response of like defensiveness, right? And, and batten down the hatches. And, and now, we ha- now we have to prove why it's fine, you know, or repent. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In your in your book, you talk about the ways that power operates with gender and the way power operates with race. But there's one chapter um, before that where you you talk about how power operates in systems. This this is a, a fairly controversial thing, Diane. Believe it or not. Yes, uh, it is. Um, there are there's an almost this an- anxious allergy to wanting to reckon with the reality that power functions in systems because to even say that you get sort of labeled as um a, like a pejorative marxist or something um diane you don't strike me as a card-carrying communist i'm wondering uh you know correct me if i'm wrong but i'm wondering <laughs> <laughs> i'm wondering could you help us frame the idea of maybe systemic abuse or or sin from a from a biblical or christian perspective well, I, I think we, we have to start with the fact that the word system means together stand. So it's simply human beings standing together for something, which is not wrong at all. I mean, if you think back into the Old Testament and the building of the temple and all that, you know, those are people standing together hmm. to worship the one God in the midst of all kinds of idolatry. Hmm. Um <clears throat> they failed in a million ways, but nonetheless, the point is that systems are meant for people to stand together and they are meant to bless people. That's the original purpose of systems, mm-hmm. whether it's the system of the family, the system of the church, the purpose is to bless. What happens is that we begin to protect and value the system more than the God who is to govern those systems. Mm -hmm. And so we stand together to protect the institution, not the people. Mm -hmm. The word dissident means to sit apart. And that's what Jesus did with corrupt systems. He called Mm -hmm. them by their right name. He pointed out what they were doing that was, you know, he called the temple a a den of robbers. Yes. Which literally means a safe place for those who steal things. <laughs> I mean, that's literally what it means. Yeah, yeah. A den is a safe that's where, place. Yeah. That's where and, you go after you've done your uh, risky stealing. Right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Come back and to so the When temple. you think about sexual abuse and the church mm. covering it up, it has become mm. a den of robbers because it's become oh, wow. a safe place for those who steal. Wow. And he was a dissident. Yeah. He was a dissident from a system that God made up. It was his idea to have yeah. a temple. Yes, it yeah. was. Right. So he came against something that originally was an idea from God for people that got corrupted. And so he spoke against it. So that's what it's supposed to look like. And so clearly systems have been in the faith community since almost the beginning. Yes. Clearly they were meant to bless God's people. And anytime that is no longer true, it isn't just an individual that is harming or, or sinful. It is an entire system that is protecting all of those things like armor around them. Yes. 
rather than living in ways that are obedient to God. Yes, and I'm sure, Diane, you have examples and stories of this happening, but I've seen this where uh, uh, someone um, pulled out of a system, say a church, if they were given a test and they were asked, is, is sexual abuse okay? Yes or no? They'd circle no. But you put them in the system, right? And then they and then they're confronted with a crisis and their choice is to protect the system or uh, go down the path where the system gets just destroyed because of what's been happening. Yes. And and you it's a whole different ballgame for them. Yes. And we use names uh, about the system as in it's God's house. Why would you destroy God's house? Oh, yeah. So there's a tremendous use of verbal things and emotional things to manipulate the power of the system to protect itself. Yes. And so to stand up and say a pastor or Sunday school teacher, whoever sexually abused me is to abuse the house of God. Hmm. Yeah. There's a, there's a conflation then between the God who established the system for the purpose of blessing yes, and the system itself, there's this conflation where you can't attack the system because to do so is to attack God. Yes. So that it further entrenches, ironically, it further entrenches the, the anti-God system. That's right. Or the system that has become against God. Yes. In the name of God, we're doing right. something that actually, I mean, which is tragic and ironic, um, but that's what we see happening. Yes, so God's house becomes a safe place for those who steal. Yes. Because we love God and want to protect his name. Yeah. <laughs> and if that doesn't hurt your brain, there's something wrong with yeah. it. Right. Oh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Diane, I'm so glad you brought up that example of the temple. I think that's such a I, I think rooting rooting the naming of systems that created for good become places that hide evil. Um, even evil that individuals in the system would not partake in by themselves, but mm -hmm. being in the system, it becomes logically necessary. Yes. There's a, there's a, there's a justification for it that seems cogent, it's but it's actually necessary. It's good. Oh yeah. The, the other thing that we don't really grapple with is the fact that systems have cultures. Yeah. Say more and about that. We absorb those cultures pretty much without question. So if you think about it, even just across the Protestant church, you have the culture of those who go to Methodist church, Episcopal churches, Baptist churches, whatever. They're different. Mm -hmm. If you got picked up out of a Baptist church and dumped in an Episcopal church, you wouldn't feel at home because it's a different culture. And we absorb that and we make that the same as God. Mm. It's, it's the same kind of thing. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, uh, all the, the, we're talking about systems, and maybe just to double-click on this, uh, because you bring up Edwin Friedman in your book, and you talk about his book, Generations to Generations, and how he talks about the two things we demand from leaders are expertise and charisma. Um, now, Edwin Friedman was my gateway into Bowen, Bowen family systems theory, mm -hmm. uh, and his, his book, A Failure of Nerve, kind of saved my life. <laughs> Um, uh, but I'm curious as to like, could you tease out what, what those are, our value of expertise and charisma, how has that contributed 
to the place we are now where we don't really understand how to operate in godly power in the church? Charisma and expertise demand external proofs in the sense of numbers or money or fame or numbers of books or you name it. And so we end up demanding certain things from our leaders and feeling spiritually successful. And we tolerate characters that look nothing like Jesus Christ. So if we have 3,000 members in our church and the best music team that there is, and we're in the newspapers and all of that, thing, all of that it's, it's the same thing as systems in God's house and using that to protect evil, frankly. We do with our leaders similar things. And so the stress of having to create the external and focus on it means the heart is neglected. You can't have a shepherd if you do that. No. This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com academy. Diane, I, you, you work with Grace. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious, could you give our listeners a make like the, the commercial version of what grace is and how it functions in these abuse and, and situations. not, not grace, the theological concept. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Godly response to abuse. You, you work with grace in a you, Christian well, environment. Yeah. We all, we all try to, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, it stands yeah. for godly response to abuse in a Christian environment. And I've been on their board almost since it was born. <laughs> um, it, it does many, many things now. It, it does investigations when there's been accusations of abuse in a church or a Christian organization or Christian school or whatever. Um, and I would like to say, in light of that fact, that when something like that gets discovered or named in, a, in an institution or system, the first response needs to be one of humility by the people in the system that they themselves cannot investigate their own. I mean, that's like sending a batterer home to evaluate the health of his family. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so you have to have the humility to ask for help. That seems like such a uh, basic duh kind of thing, Diane, but um, my, my guess is that's one of the main ways that churches get this wrong, is they try to they try to investigate and get to the bottom of these allegations in-house without any external help. Yes, and they, they, don't know, they don't know abuse well, they don't know deception well, they, there's a lot of things they don't know, but the other thing is they want to protect the system. <laughs> yes. I mean, they're, they're biased that way, which I understand. 
but right. that makes them slanted in their views. Yeah. So Grace can come in as an independent organization and do the investigation for them. The church is supposed to want truth. So that's the point. Yeah. Okay. That's it also Grace does um, trainings in churches, mm. how to be a safe place, mm. which churches need also because if you don't really understand dynamics of abuse and those kinds of things and the deceptions involved in that, you may long for your church to be a safe place, but you still will miss things because you don't know. So yeah, right. they, they do those kinds of things as well. They they teach safeguarding, uh, um, all that kinds of uh, you know. So they consult with churches. They also go in and do um, a study of the church's culture and give them feedback. Hmm. So it isn't necessarily in crisis. They'd like to avoid one. Is the point? And so they they have somebody come in and look at their culture and how it uses power and how it uses theological language and, and all those kinds of things, and then they get a report about that. Hmm. So th there are multiple ways. Having grace involved doesn't mean somebody has accused somebody of abuse. It can mean other things as well. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm struck by um, even, the, even the work that some of the work that grace does, uh, I think, uh, highlights some of what you're talking about with, when you talk about systems, where they operate invisibly. And so if I'm part of a system, I'll probably be the last person to see how the system operates in terms of power and all of that kind of thing. And so having that outside voice can help you know, me as someone inside the system to actually understand how this works because it, it seems like um, systems are designed to function invisibly. So we don't have to invent ways of relating to each other every single time we meet, right? Yes. Like There's we have the way a system. we do it. Yes. Yeah, the way we do it is is like as a is a culture, and so it just strikes me that, um, yeah, I, I I I feel what you're talking about there. With a knee jerk reaction, is to protect the system because it feels like, I mean, oh. it, it feels like I think a lot of times our very identities are threatened. Yes, right, because we've associated ourselves with so so much with these systems. It feels like home. Yeah. And one of the things I, I mentioned in the book is the example of the first time as a kid, you go in somebody else's house and you go, what? Why do they live like that? <laughs> <laughs> I thought everybody did this. And so you're looking at a smaller system, of course, but the family is a system and you yes. see people do things completely different and you think it's weird. Yes. It doesn't feel like home and we want to feel at home. We were meant to be home. Yes. Yes. You, you tell some stories in this book, and I don't want to give them all away, but you, you, you share a little bit about um, how language shapes the way we hold and, and carry power. You talk about the genocide in Rwanda and the language that was used there by Christians to you know justify and rationalize atrocities. Um, you quote this amazing speech by Adolf Hitler <laughs> in your book. Yes. Um, I remember putting that on Facebook uh, and asking people to guess who said it uh, because it sounds like it's right out of 2020. Um, yes. Uh, could you name, could you talk a little bit about how the language we use shapes and uh, distorts perhaps our relationship to power in our relationships? Well, uh, part of it is that people who are in power or in leadership want their language to be powerful. 
because they want to have impact, which is not a bad thing. It just depends on what you're saying <laughs> and what kind of impact you want to have. So when you read those words by Hitler, they sound wonderful to many people. You know, that's what I want. That's what my heart longs for. And then when they realize who said it, what they realize is that what he was actually doing is manipulating people by using words their hearts want and long for so that mm. they could not see, not know, in quotes, what was really happening. Ooh. Is that just, do you, do you call that just manipulation, Diane, or is there well, something it's, else? It's also outright deception. Yeah. Which goes back to Eden again. I mean, that's what the enemy did. Yes. He used words to pull out what the heart wanted and deceived so that the choice was not God rather than God. And they didn't see it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as, as we talk about, you know, Hitler and Rwanda genocide, I mean, these are just like the paragons of atrocity, right? But then we get more granular. And I think through friends who, I've had friends who go to pastors and they say things like, um, so-and-so molested me. And what they're told is, um, they get asked questions like, well, what were you wearing? Yes. And, or they get, or they get things like, well, yeah, all of us fall short of the glory of God what you need to do is um, forgive this person. Yes. And, and I, I don't think these are, I mean, it's the same thing, right? Like we're using, we're deceived and we're using language to manipulate people. Uh, but we don't, I don't think people actually know what I'm doing right now is destructive and hurtful. It's just um, part of their self-deception. Am I, am I? Well, yes, but it's also not the truth because the, the Lord that we follow at least theoretically, says what comes out of the person comes from the heart of the person, yeah. not from the person standing in front of them. <laughs> many, many years ago, I, I taught a leadership class at a seminary every January for the graduating class. And we talked about some of these issues and, and we talked about Friedman's book and things like that. So, so this is a room full of young men, right? <laughs> They're in their early 20s. And I would say to them, one of these days, you know, you're going to be in your office and some woman's going to come in for counseling. Let's say that she comes in and she sits down and she starts crying and she's talking to you and you're listening. And then she stands up and takes all her clothes off. You, you could have heard a pin drop in the room. Yeah. But what I said to them was, what happens next tells me about you, not about her. Because what you do to vulnerability tells me about you. It doesn't tell, the vulnerability tells me about the person, mm -hmm. but it doesn't tell me about the responder. Jesus taught us that. Yeah. Hmm. I feel like we just need to insert 20 seconds of silence here for the listeners to reckon with that. Maybe just me. <laughs> yeah. What do we do with vulnerability? And I think that's the question, uh, like uh, ungodly power or abuse of power manipulates it or uses it, right? Deceives yes. it, uh, uh, like uh, recruits it to, to do something for an agenda. Um, maybe as we begin to wrap up our conversation, Diane, like what can we learn from Jesus about what Jesus' power does with vulnerability? Well, first of all, he became like it. 
I mean, he was a baby. Yeah. He went, you know, he, given the season, you think of the words in O Come All Ye Faithful, but, you know, word of our Father now in flesh appearing. He, he put skin on, which made him capable of being wounded, which he clearly was. It made him capable of death. And he came in the flesh as a servant to others in the flesh. And the purpose of that servanthood was to love and bless people. The other piece of it is, he said, <clears throat> A stunning thing if you really stop and soak in it a little bit and that is I what I do always what I do is to please the father always not the system he clearly didn't please the system of his day not the people not the leaders didn't matter I always please the father that's the only way for power to be safe with vulnerable people which means that if I'm in a leadership position and I impact other people, whether it's a tiny little place or a huge place, my first work is my heart. Where do I not want to please the Father but myself? Where do I want to feed off people in front of me because I'm exhausted from the pressure of leadership and I'm so, I feel so lonely I can hardly stand it another minute. Yes. What you're saying, Diane, is if maybe I can reflect back, like most of us don't plan or choose to uh, to be abusive, deceptive people. We just find it unfortunately necessary because our hearts are so, what, twisted, empty, hurting, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, ben, what, what struck you as she talked about... Um, uh, becoming like th the power of the universe in mm -hmm. the face of vulnerability becomes vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. I, th I um, I, I, f I feel like you know the twenty seconds of silence to soak it all up is uh, maybe what I need. But um, yeah, I think I, I'm thinking about um, we, we use an axiom, Diane, in our organization, in our training. Um, that's, that says that whatever God does through you, he's also going to do in you. That there is this coherence between his work, that, you know, my work as a minister, as somebody who is, is an agent of God's kingdom, and then my participation in that kingdom. That there's a coherence between those things. And so I hear you naming um, some of that in, um, and maybe this is, I don't even know where I'm going with this, except to say that I think God's participation in his own creation, God's participation in his own work is similar to that for us. And I think that there's a, there's a necessity for us as leaders and as pastors to uh, think of ourselves as participants, to think of ourselves as those who um, need uh, the grace of God just as much as the people that we're ministering to. Otherwise, we end mm -hmm. up in those places uh, mm -hmm. that you spoke of. Yes. He became like us yeah. so that we might become like him. Mm. Hmm. He didn't just yeah. come down and tell us what to do. Right. They, you know, God did that with the Ten Commandments. We didn't listen very well. <laughs> <laughs> didn't work. <You> know? <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's exposing of us. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So then, so then, it strikes me, Diane, that if we're going to hold and embody and share and live in power, and, uh, according to our created purpose, that we better we better come to reckon with and understand better what love is. Um, and so you've already described it as uh, a co vulnerability co vulnerabilitying. If I can make up a verb, of course. Um, right. Uh, you also mentioned service. Um, what are maybe I don't know if you've got stories or you can think of examples of of people or places that took love seriously and created a culture that like you'd wish your grandkids to be raised in. You know, a culture of love where power is for the sake of others rather than lord it over others. Like what can you what can you tell us about that kind of culture and how to make that a resilient thriving place? Well, the first thing is that the servanthood part is a servant of God, not the people. Hmm. Which is what Jesus was saying, you know, I always please the Father. That has to be first. Because you you can't work with orphans in another country or trafficked women or incest survivors or whatever. You can't do that year after year after year and not get messed up unless you start there. Mm -hmm. You'll get twisted by the work of good that you're doing. (laughs) Yes. That is so So key. That's number one. Having, Mm. and, and it's not something you do, it's something you live. Yeah. It, yeah. it's, it never stops. It won't even stop in heaven. Yeah. We'll still be his servants. Mm-hmm. We'll probably do a better job there. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> I think that's why they call it heaven. <laughs> I like part of it. But yeah. it's out of that that you create a culture and bend down to the little one or the dying one or the trafficked one or the enraged one because they've been abused so many times they don't know anything but rage or... Mm whatever it is, whether it's your neighbor or somebody in your family or an orphanage full of kids, Mm -hmm. you know, it has to start there with him and stay there so that what flows out of that is, is not rancid water. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's the fountain. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, we get turned in on ourselves and our turned in on our communities, and that that seems to be, you know, to go back to systems. That seems to be the source of that corruption of the of the God given system, which is for our blessing. But it becomes corrupted when it gets disconnected from the fount of that of that uh, of that blessing. Yes, and as a finite, sinful human being, you can't do that kind of work mm-hmm. and last well yeah. without it. Because yeah. it will drain you dry and you won't be able to stand that. Yeah. So you'll start hurting people or hurting yourself or both or mm-hmm. feeding off the system, all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could, we, uh, we could probably talk about this for a long time because my, my thoughts are going in so many different uh, mm-hmm. directions. But one, one of them, and I, don't, I don't know if you uh, uh, have anything to say about this or not, but I, I'm thinking of um, Athanasius. 
uh, in his uh, book uh, on the incarnation, he talks about sin like you talk about it here, where he talks about it not as like, oh, I, I violated the rule and now God's going to punish me because I violated the rule. But he talks about sin as humanity turning in on itself, um, is, my, is a paraphrase, but like humanity sort of forgetting that they were created by God and looking to each other to try to to try to source life and, and mm-hmm. get life and, and we end up twisted and then you know Athanasius talks about the incarnation then is God saying there's no other way for me to actually turn them back toward me unless I become one of them so they can look at me like they're looking at each other yes um, and so that's the beauty I think of the incarnation and the beauty of what you're calling us into as leaders to stay connected to the fount con- connected to the source as we yeah. do our work well, and even not as leaders, everybody influences people. You yeah. go through a grocery store line and not influence somebody. Yeah. And so it doesn't have to be a big position or any position at all. As we stay, you know, as we love and obey Christ, yeah. you know, and he, he's the source of what comes out of us. Yeah. We will bless people. We may mm. not know the half of it while yeah. we're here, yeah. but we will. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah. Diane, um, we've just barely touched on the themes in your book. Uh, so much good stuff about not just the ways that we get power and abuse wrong. You go into uh, Christendom, another another maybe system we could talk about that warps and shapes and forms our imaginations for what power is and the work it's supposed to do and what people are for, etc. Um, but uh, we just committed heartily. I think the work you're doing is naming the necessity of the work we're doing, which is training people to orient and center their lives on the love of God revealed in Jesus. And uh, from the stay-at-home dad who has, you know, one small child to the woman leading a 10,000-person church, uh, it's the same recipe, <laughs> right? It's the same fuel that that fuels our life. Um, Diane, uh, you, you, I know you teach there at, uh, at Missio, Summary. Not more, but I did. Yes, you did. You did. Are are you? Do you do any regular trainings, teachings that people can find outside of your books at all? Um. Well, I did before COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all did lots of stuff before COVID. But most of what I I did and hope to do again will be trainings in terms of either churches or organizations or things like that. I will be speaking for the European Leadership Forum uh, this spring a couple of times, um, which is for Christian leaders internationally about these kinds of things, the character of the leader and character of the counselor and Mm. trauma and all those things. Um, So we'll see how somebody who's way older than technology (laughs) will figure out how to do that. So I I assume that I will go back to doing that uh, more live. Do you have a a place where people can um, look at your schedule or maybe uh, visit you online? Yes, I have a website, which is just my name. It's full of resources. It has videos of talks I've given. Awesome. uh, A few blogs. And when I'm speaking, I, I I haven't done anything for months because of COVID. But when I'm speaking, the schedule is there. Great. Well, the book, again, is called Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church by Dr. Diane Langberg. Diane, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. It was an honor. Great to be with you.
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.